Let us pray. Heavenly Father, prepare us for your word. Lord, please give me much grace on this topic. And I pray that you would give uh, much grace to people in our congregation on this topic. And uh, Lord, I just pray again that uh, we would hear your word today, even if it might be hard. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's time. It's time for the talk. Right? The birds and the bees. But this time, it's not your parents telling you, it's the pastor, right? Oh, great. How much more awkward can this get, you're right, than the, the pastor talking about the birds and the bees? I wonder how many different variations we've had uh, growing up uh, about hearing this talk and the different venues we've heard it from. Maybe you've had it at the school talk, which is, you know, the talk of your bodies are changing, you know, hormones are being used and you're crazy and, uh, you know, you're going to have a lot of physicality in this time of life. Just make sure you consent, be safe, use protection, boom. That's the, that's the school talk, right? Or maybe you had the talk from the church youth group talk, which they showed the STD pictures and scared you half to death, right? Saying this can be destructive. Sign a pledge. Get married and it will solve all your problems, right? That might be that venue and that talk. Well, today, what are you going to hear from the pastor? The school talk? The church youth group talk? Is this going to be a scolding? Am I going to talk to you adults like you're a bunch of teenagers? Behave yourself. You can do this. You can't do that. Maybe I'll make people sweat this morning, right? Like you might have in those classes. Is that Paul's approach? Is that his approach to sex? No. Instead of anatomy pictures and making us fearful, Paul gives us a groundbreaking view of sex based on the unity with Christ that makes the Corinthians rethink their actions and gives them a God-glorifying view of sex. Again, Paul gives us a groundbreaking view of sex based on unity with Christ. It makes the Corinthians rethink their actions and gives them a God-glorifying view of sex. Let's look, shall we? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and, all, and will also raise, up, uh, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
Never. Or do you not know that he, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as, is, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Where you're just joining us, you've come at a great time, right? The, the kind of hits just keep on coming right now in Corinthians, and you're going to get it for the next couple weeks. Here is a letter written in 55 AD to a church going through some issues, to say the least. You see, Paul, who planted this church and now has been away from this church for a few years, is hearing what's happening in this church. And these are some of the issues that are happening. Married people in this church have lovers outside of their marriage. Men have mistresses. People in the church are having sex with temple prostitutes. Singles in the church are facing pressure to go along with prostitution and becoming prostitutes themselves. If there is any a time for a situation for Paul to start listing names Firing away at people, bringing down the hammer of the law, you would think this would be it, especially on this topic. But you see that Paul, again, for the past six chapters, starts with first grace and peace to this church, talks about unity with the church, then talks about how the church as a whole, deals with unrepentant sin with people in the church. But now, here he is, chapter 6. He's going to talk to people individually. He's going to talk to these people dealing with these pressures, struggling with these sexual sins. And he wants to think how, as Christians, which they call themselves identified with Christ, think about this topic of sex. Not just married people, but widows and singles and youth. He wants to give us an ethic that addresses everyone in the church. You're going to see in verse 18, he uses this word, porneia, which he has used before. This is really the foundations of what we're going to call, for the next few weeks, the Christian sexual ethic. The Christian sexual ethic says this. It's against the idea of porneia, which is clearly defined. Porneia, for the church, for Christ, for the church for 2,000 years has been this. Sexual immorality is having sex 
outside of the confines and covenant of marriage. And marriage is between a man and a woman. Now Paul, in this passage, is specifically dealing with the issue of prostitution in the church. But again, when he uses this word porneia, he's speaking more broadly than that. Now he is dealing with a culture that has an ethic that is very contrary to this Christian sexual ethic. And he's going to have to work through major argumentation deeply to the ingrained issues and ideas that people have in the Roman culture. In the same way this was hard for Paul to do, I think it's sometimes just crazy. I think I'm crazy. For this morning, in the next couple weeks, to argue the Christian sexual ethic in our culture. To say that we are against sex before marriage, to say we're against casual sex, hookup culture, homosexuality, to say that in our age is insane at times. Many times this is what I hear from people. What century are you in? How can you still hold to these positions? Get with the times. I want you to hear this, please. Today's sexual ethic is not as progressive as you think. In fact, that was happening 2,000 years ago in Rome. In fact, Christianity is the one that was progressive on the issue of sex and actually changed humanity's views on how we should view sex. And that is how we've been living as Western culture for 2,000 years because of Christianity's influence. But the times have changed. I'm just going to jam on this for just a little bit. Because Paul jams a little bit, let me jam on this, okay? I like Taylor Swift, okay? I like her music. My girls like her music, all those kind of things. But when Taylor Swift thinks she's being edgy by her views on sexual ethics, she is fooling herself. She is in line with most of the culture nowadays. If you are 40 and younger, this is kind of maybe a division, what's happening in our culture. If you are 40 and younger and you hold to the Christian sexual ethic, you are against the culture. My girls aren't here right now, but the conversations I have with my daughter, she is probably, she says, Dad, I'm probably one of the only people in school that I know that holds to the Christian sexual ethic. And my views on LGBTQ things are totally outside of the norm. And the thing is, when people say I am being edgy for having these views, if you're 40 and younger and standing against something because I hold to um, an ethic of casual sex and things like that, if you think you are being edgy for that, you're not. 
<laughs> Let's just face it. You're part of the status quo. But I understand the tension and the hardness of this in our culture. I lived it myself, living in Madison, growing up in Madison, going to public school, which I think was ahead of now what we're seeing throughout culture. And many times what you hear from older adults, I'm sorry, trying not to stereotype much as possible, but what you hear from older adults is this. They say, how dare you, you know, how dare you stand out of the traditional view of sex? And the arguments made by most older adults is not actually from the theology of the body of the Christian worldview, but it's more from culture and what they've experienced growing up. And if we really want to talk about the Christian sexual ethic in our age, we can't just say, oh, this is the way it's been. This is just tradition, the nuclear family. That does not hold any water anymore. And if you're making that argument to younger people of why you should view sex in that way, that is an argument that will not stand. And that is why I think this passage is so good. Because it gives us why we actually stand for this. A theology of sex. A theology of the body. Which is actually why we believe what we believe as Christians. Not because that's the way we do things. Because that's the nuclear family. No. Because that is what God calls us to in his word. So that's my jam. Let's go to see what Paul says, shall we? So, here is the arguments that Paul makes. Let's look at verses 12 through 24. He starts first by understanding what people are saying in this context. And this is the ingrained thinking that many people in that church are having. And might be similar to maybe arguments we hear today. And he's encouraging, don't tune out, but see, I have something beneficial to say even to your arguments that you're making. And you can see in verse 12, there are two quotes of the same that are in quotations, probably because there are phrases that are repeated among people in the church and in the culture. And the phrases are this, all things are lawful for me. So it was a phrase that... Um, might have been a butchering of what Paul was saying about grace. They're taking maybe that Christian view and saying, oh, it's okay, we're not under the law anymore. Paul says we can eat what we want. So if we can eat what we want, we can have sex with who we want to. We're not under the law anymore. So I can do with what I want with my body. And taking that idea of grace and saying, do what I want. Or it could just be a philosophical teaching that was part of the Gnostic teaching of Rome. The idea that we have transcended the body. That uh, we are now wise, we are now mature. Because we've transcended the body, we can do what we want with the body because all that matters is the soul. And Paul responds to this thinking and these sayings in two ways. First, verse 12, but not all things are helpful. So you might have freedom, but that, that does not mean 
that freedom is profitable or helpful. The actual Greek word, sometimes in NIV, it's translated profitable. I like the, um, the ESV, things are helpful. The Greek word is used many times in Corinthians and it's the idea of how we treat others. See, the guiding principle for Christian freedom is not simply about self-love, what I can do for myself, my own pleasure, but it's about how I love others. And when Paul talks about being helpful and profitable, he says it should be something that is loving towards others. Again, all things are helpful, lawful for me. See, the focus for them was how it's beneficial for me. And Paul's saying, no, that is not how we should be thinking about Christian freedom. It should be instead how it is helpful, not just for me, but for others. Is sex with prostitutes keeping in line with this teaching, Corinth? He goes on again. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Here's another important aspect of Christian freedom. It's not that it makes a person free to sin, but it makes someone free not to sin. You see, we talk, we love it in our culture. We love the idea of freedom and we espouse the idea of freedom. We have choice, we can do what we want. But I'm wondering if what we espouse is actually true freedom. Story I heard recently. Police officers finding a crying baby in the back of a car and seeing the parents of this child in the front seat passed out because they've overdosed on opiates. Is that freedom? That I have freedom to choose what drug I want to take, to do what I want? Do you think those people are truly free? See, Christian freedom is being able to be free from the enslavement of sin. And sex can enslave us into bad relationships. It can enslave us to the internet and to our screens in pornography. Is that really freedom? Or have you been dominated, enslaved? Here's another quote they use in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So if I've been given a stomach and the desire is to have food, then God has also given me a body and sexual appetites, so therefore I should fulfill them. And since all of it's going to burn in the end, my body's going to be gone and all that's left is going to be the soul, so they thought in Corinth, I can do what I want with my body and my sexual appetites. Who cares? See, the major problem for the Corinthians is they thought salvation does not involve the body. The soul is all that exists, so I can do what I want with it. And Paul corrects them. 
He says the body matters. Jesus didn't just come as a soul. He came as a body. When he was resurrected, he wasn't just resurrected in the soul, but he was resurrected in the body. When he comes again, he's not going to just come as a soul, but he's going to come in the body. When there is a new heavens and new earth, we are not going to be just souls. Instead, we are going to be resurrected bodies. The body matters. See, when it comes to justification of sex outside of marriage, I hear similar arguments, and you might too. You might make the arguments yourself. One quote I've heard recently is this. Sex is sex. I'm trying to understand what that person actually means by saying sex is sex. I think what they mean, it's for pleasure. It's for the body. Don't get so worked up about it. It's just sex. Don't tie too much to it is the kind of thinking. The other prevailing thought is as long as between two consenting adults, it's fine. All things are lawful. Two consenting adults, it'll be fine. It's an argument I hear very often. I heard growing up very often in Madison. But what I found recently is this. That idea that I can just have casual sex can't hold up with also what we're seeing in our culture with the Me Too movement. On one end, we have I can do what I want between two consenting adults. On the other, we've seen the pain that is caused by casual sex in the Me Too movement. And this is where the kind of the confusion has started to happen in our culture, and you might have seen this. Case after case, Aziz Ansari is an, an example. There are numerous examples. When I, you know, uh, the morning show is a show on Apple TV that I see that same kind of confusion happen, happening. See, people think that they're consenting, but then the aftermath of the sex, they feel really hurt. One person is hurt by someone else. Words were not used in the right way. And people are realizing, I'm just using it for pleasure. I'm just having casual sex. But they're realizing that, wait a second. There is more involved in this than just pleasure. I'm getting hurt. And it's not just women, but it's men. We're talking past each other. It's part of the reason we're talking past each other is because we think this is just for pleasure or for myself when sex is not just made for that. There is a spiritual dynamic, an emotional dynamic. And these sayings, sex is sex, it's okay if it's between consenting adults, is causing serious pain 
and confusion in our culture. And I'm not just saying that as a Christian pastor. I'm saying that's what I'm observing even from non-Christians and what they are experiencing. And there are people that are very hurt in our culture because of this. And why this is so needed And Paul's saying it does not just hurt others, but it also hurts us individually. And here's where Paul, after answering these arguments in verses 12 through 14, now he digs deep. And he does that by a phrase he uses three times. Do you not know? So I'm going to say it to you. I'm looking at you now. We are going to say it three times and we are going to get down what is a theology of the body. Do you not know? I think many of us don't. Do you not know who you really are in Christ? Let's start with the first one, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. See, just before this passage, Paul reminds his people who you are in Christ. You have been washed. I mean, your sins have been taken you have been sanctified, meaning you have been set apart. You have become holy. You have been justified, meaning you have been made righteous. This is what Christ has done with you. And it even extends even more here in what he says. This is one that many times we de-emphasize in Christianity today. We are actually united with Christ. United with him in his death and his resurrection. That we need his life, the way he has lived, the true Adam, not our father Adam who sinned, but Christ. We need to be engrafted with him. And that's what's happened in our salvation. We have received him inside of us. See, the body is not something you try to throw off. No, it's been renewed and now it's become eternal because of our unification with Christ. Because we are united with Him and His body. And so Paul's saying, if that is true, would you want to unite Christ with a prostitute? And Paul is adamant, May it never be, and it should expose out of people. Why? Christ united with a prostitute? Of course not. But that's what's happening. That's what you're doing. Now, this concept in a very individualistic and secular world might seem very strange. Does that mean we lose our identity 
Because now we're engrafted with Christ. We're just now part of the Borg. No. In fact, when we're united with Christ, our true identity comes out. The things that maybe kept us from being who we really were, our anxiousness, our idolatry, our enslavement of sin has been freed so now we can be who we are when we are united with Christ. You know, people also say that idea of unification with Christ seems really foreign, but I think it doesn't, it's not that foreign when I hear about people's idea of what love is. I still hear this over and over again. I want to have a soul partner. There is someone out there for me. You know, a, a soul that we are connected with and I want to find that person, my soul partner. That's the same kind of language and thinking. Someone that will fulfill us. That will be with forever. So we have this kind of thinking ourselves. But here, Christ saying, I will be that for you. I am that for you. I have that kind of entering into that kind of intimacy with you. See, a theology of the body, the Christian sexual ethic, is not saying the body is bad. So don't do that stuff like have sex. That is not what it's saying. In fact, it creates an ethic of honoring the body. The body is good. And to have sex even more beautiful and fulfilling, you need to understand it in this context. And here, he will elaborate again. Another, do you not know? Look with me again. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You see, Paul references Genesis here. This is the creation edict. The two will become one flesh. And it's talking with more than just physical union. He's talking about intimacy emotionally, spiritually. This is a radical view in the Roman Empire that you would actually in sex, in sex be giving your whole person one to another. In a culture like this where there is casual sex, where you're having sex with prostitutes, where married men have mistresses, that Paul is saying, actually, when you have sex, it's more than just pleasure. It's actually self-disclosure. It's commitment. That was a radical concept. That it's more than just being physically naked. That you are being emotionally naked, spiritually naked in front of someone else, exposing yourself to someone and uniting yourself with someone in that way. Some might think it's awkward that right after he says the two will become one flesh, 
And then he says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Why right after that talking about the Lord? The word joining here in Greek is the Greek word kolon, which means holding fast. Clinging to. You see, what Paul is saying, sex gives us a glimpse of intimacy with the Lord. Of our union with Him, of our intimacy with Him, of our giving ourselves to Him. And what a good word for those who are single. Yes, sex gives us a glimpse of God and His love for us, but it cannot replace the intimacy that we have with the Lord in our union with Christ. That can be true for all people, whether married or not. And this, I think, is why Paul's language is so harsh in verse 18. Flee. I don't think you can get a harder imperative than that. Run, run, run. Get away. Get away from this thinking. Do not do this. Run from porneia. Run from sexual morality. Because if you engage in it, you are dehumanizing yourself. This is not what God meant for you. He says, you're sinning, what? Against your own body. What does that mean? The body is not just the flesh here, it's wholeness. About how you're made, soul and body, in transformation to God, you are, you are sinning against that. You see, when you have sex in covenant relationship, in commitment, how much more vulnerable can you get than nakedness in front of someone else? And they still love you unconditionally. And when you treat this casually, that can cause serious pain. That you've exposed yourself, but then someone is not with you then emotionally, spiritually. Again, I could use cultural reference after cultural reference, not just me speaking as a Christian, but what I see in culture. Adults, I encourage you, a movie of a reference is the movie called A Marriage Story. And it really is a movie that shows what happens when this kind of relationship is fractured. And you see the pain that is experienced, and this is not from a Christian worldview, you see the pain of this fracture. When we treat sex in this way, and it was so chilling, through this removal, through this fracture, through these two that are emotionally and spiritually connected that then are removed from each other, you see it, Adam Driver is with his friends. 
And he goes up to the microphone to sing a song, a Stephen Sondheim song. It's so well done. And he sings, Somebody need me too much. Somebody know me too well. Somebody pull me up short and put me through hell and give me support for being alive. Make me alive. Make me alive. You see in our culture, people are crying out, I want intimacy. I want someone to know me. For all of I am who I am, my good and my bad, I want someone to know me this way. And sex shows that. And then you rip that apart? And he cries out his pain. And all of me just want to say in that moment, someone does want to know you that much and love you that much and make you alive. That is the picture of the gospel. Christ wants intimacy with, with us in that way. And if Christ wants intimacy with us in that way, how much more does he want us to experience that in our relationships with others? Or do you not know? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Man, this last one, it just hits home. You are not your own you were bought with a Christ. Paul is saying this is the Christian reality. We have been rescued from slavery. We have been rescued from the ways that we've treated our bodies simply for pleasure, our own desires, and it's caused destruction. Paul's saying you have been rescued from this. You have been redeemed. You have been bought. Christ has paid the price to free you from these things. And the thing is, this flies in the face about what we hear about sex in our age. It's my body. I do what I want. You can't tell me who I can have sex with or who I want to be with. I wonder how that would go over if I treated that in the same way I talked to Erin in my relationship with her. You can't tell me how I use my body, Erin. Who I give my body to what I do for pleasure. Now 
No, that's not the way intimacy works. That's not the way relationship works. I do believe the way that our marriage works is that I am giving up my independence to love her. I am giving of myself to love my wife. And she is doing the same for me. And that is what God is saying. Lose your independence. I have bought you. Because I love you. I want intimacy with you. And some will say, why should I do that? Why should I give up my independence? Why should I give up myself? Why should I enter into relationship with God in that way? Because he did it for us. Is there ever a greater picture of intimacy in giving up independence that God coming to earth, taking on body, living a perfect life, dying for us, that is a picture of him living for us, giving intimacy to us. You see, when we have sex in this way of committed covenant relationship, of giving up ourselves to someone else, we show a glorification of God and what he has done for us. I often get requests. I try to call on anyone out here in our church. Can you talk to my son or my daughter about living with their girlfriend or boyfriend? Can you talk to them about that? I don't, I, you know, it's not right. They're not listening to me. Can you talk to them about that? I have a friend or, you know, a, a family member that is dealing with same-sex attraction and has this, has this concept of homosexuality. Can you, can you talk to them about that? Maybe you can say something that will change their mind. And they think that I can come in and have a conversation and convince them, here's some good facts of why you shouldn't live together before you get married, right? You know, and then I'll spot off some information like, you know, people that live together before they get married have a higher rate of getting divorced later, right? Is that, is that what argumentation I'm supposed to use? You know, this is the way it's been, and this is how your family units worked, and, you know, it just makes sense that we're in heterosexual relationships, and, you know, there you go. So you should do it too. No. I'm not going to convince people that way. This is the one simple question I ask. If I really have to go talk to that person, this is the question I ask. Who knows best what to do with your body? You or God? And usually from that answer, I can decide where I'm going to go. If someone says, I do, then I say, okay, then I think it makes sense what you're doing. Especially in our culture. Go for it. 
I don't think it's the best choice. And then I'll present the gospel. But if they're a Christian, they say, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus. Then maybe I should say things like this. Do you not know? Do you not know you are united with Christ? That he lives in you? That something happened when you called yourself a Christian? Something radically changed in your life? That you are no longer yourself, but you are united with him? Do you not know? If you want to try and find full fulfillment in life, it's not going to be found through sex and just finding sexual pleasure. But in fact, when you said you were a Christian, you're saying, my full fulfillment will come with my unification with Christ because he's rescued you and saved you. Do you not know you were bought with a price? That your Savior died on the cross for you? That he knows what's best for you better than you do? Listen, all the arguments of this world of why sex is better in marriage from a world standpoint will not stand against the tidal wave of the ethic of sex in our culture right now. It won't happen. But this will. <laughs> because it gets to our very being. It says something has radically changed in us. Do you not know this? I know this topic is, can be very painful. And some of us have been very hurt by this. Shamed by the church. Felt like we're second class citizens because things we've done in our past. Paul does not shame us. The gospel does not shame us. He's saying there's a greater unity than sexual unity. There's a God that loves you and cares for you and has come for you and freed you. So no matter what you've experienced, no matter what past you have, you can have intimacy with him and it will not go away. It will be for eternity. hope you will know that intimacy and that love. That will speak to you no matter what pain you've experienced. At the same time, I hope it will direct you 
into trusting him what you do with your body because he knows what's best and he's united with you and he's crying out to you saying, live in this way because if you do, you will glorify me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bring grace and peace to our congregation through this. And that people would not come away from this with shame, but would come away with hope of what you've done. And Lord, I pray if there needs to be more conversations that people would talk to people that they need to. There is conviction that people would be led by your spirit. If there is struggle, I pray there would be victory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.